Hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the vast electronic wasteland known only as Internet Land. Welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. So today's guest is the second half of our sit-down with skipper Joel Halberstadt. We chatted about his time as a skipper in the late 60s, but this time we dig more into his time in Imagineering. Now, Joel's first res- uh, episode really has resonated with skippers, and I've gotten a lot of great commentary about his first episode. Uh, as always, make sure you head over to iTunes, give us a review over there. We love hearing your guys' feedback, and those reviews help us get better exposure. Well, our intros lately have been on the longish side, so let's just dig right into this episode. Here we go, Season 5, Episode 10, as we sit down with Skipper Joel Halberstadt in an episode we like to call A Script for the Ages, Part 2. Kungaloosh, everyone. I mean, before we kind of shift, I, I do want to chat about your time in Imagineering as well. But um, just from the your recollection of your time, you know, working the jungle, were there times where you had guests that came through, or you know, we always uh, at the time, I'm sure you had a lot of the the publicity engine for Disney had um, a lot of their stars coming through. I mean, we've all seen the Osmond uh, taping and you know the Kurt Russell days. Uh, I mean, did you did you have people through on the Jungle Cruise that you remember uh, taking around the river? I did. I did. As a matter of fact, um, starting in '69, I had I had the Osmonds on my boat. They were there. Uh, it was part of filming a special. I think it was in 69 or 70. I had all of them. Uh-huh. Um, uh, they, I think Donny Osborne was about seven or eight years old in those days. I had, uh, oh, let's see, Dom DeLuise, Bob Newhart, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Ron Ziegler, who you know was Nixon's secretary, mm-hmm. press secretary. He was he used to be a jungle skip, Yep. and uh, he was on the back of my boat. Debbie Reynolds. There are a few people that have been mentioned in the jungle lore that never worked the jungle. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Robin Williams, Kevin Costner, uh, Steve Martin, never happened. Uh, uh, no, the Costner one, we have we had verification that he was there for a summer. Really? Yeah, no, we that one we verified. It must have been long after I left. Yeah, but I stand corrected. Yeah, no, no, Steve that, Martin. Yeah, no, we know we know that you know Robin never worked for the parks and Steve was not in the jungle, you know, arena. Yeah. But, uh, but those are the the high profile people that I that I had on that, yeah. that I enjoyed and. Uh, um, huh. But now, was who was who were the people that came on that you that had the most? Like, were, did you did you ever get starstruck by uh, by anyone in particular who was a you know a, a particular favorite of yours? Um, not really. I um, was um, struck more by the way they behaved when they were out in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cary Grant uh, was very low-key, um, big sunglasses. He had his young uh, four-year-old daughter, Jennifer, with him mm-hmm. and her nanny. He really wanted to be out of the public eye. I had a big hat on. Nobody recognized him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, a VIP uh, hostess with him, but she 
she stayed on the dock. I think Don DeLuise and Bob Newhart were um, very uh, uh, um, sourpuss. I mean, as funny as those two guys are, they didn't never cracked a smile. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect them to laugh hysterically at my spiel, but they could have at least, yeah. you know. You know, it's funny. On the, it's funny on the Cary Grant side of things. I think you're the third person who we've talked to who have mentioned him coming through the parks. Uh-huh. So I wonder if he was a regular, I mean, if it was a place that they came to regularly, because he seems to get mentioned a lot from people who worked in that era. I don't know. Yeah. I know uh, William Shatner was a good example of one who came almost uh, every year with his family. Mm-hmm. And he always would ask for the same uh, uh, publicity guy, Bob Roth, at the time. Uh, he loved Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Liz Taylor was very um, glamorous, of course, loved the attention. Um, Jack Jones, and there was, he was married to a star named Jennifer somebody. He was there. But for the most part, we just sort of did our job and gave our spiel, and uh, there's nobody in particular that I that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in 68, I was working the treehouse. I looked over uh, at Pirates of the Caribbean, and standing in line uh, was uh, Mickey Dolenz of mm-hmm. the Monkees. And he was with a, a, a guy friend of his just standing in line like a regular guest. Nobody paid him any attention, so. Yeah, I think the line. Days, I think the line. Yeah, there was this, there was more of a separation and a respect for people's privacy too. Yes, in those days, the, the public wasn't uh, trained to be so starstruck and mm-hmm. and uh, like they are today. They they just it was it was just a different philosophy. Sure. Well, and being in communications, I, I find that people who have had either you know speech or theater or any of those things tend not to have quite as big of a. Uh, hero complex when it comes to to actors and such. Probably right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, within that time, that early time period, and we'll talk about you know your time writing on the spiel. But you know, did you have um, a, a few favorite lines that you that you remember from those early days that you would slip in that were really gems from your early time? My favorite. Uh areas that I made the most of and I look forward to them most. And again, I, I had developed four or five different uh, customized approaches to each one of the scenes in the Jungle Cruise, especially in, as we got to the early 70s, mid-70s. And I I would customize, and depending on who I had on my boat, what I said, the, the hippo pool was a favorite. And of course, the dancing natives and the attacking natives gave me the chance really to get the biggest response. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are many, many gambits and many approaches that the skips today, I think, use uh, when they get to the, the natives. Uh, I always played it very serious and, and would say, uh, now, I, you know, here's the plan. They're obviously celebrating the kill of that lion, but if they start to attack, uh, here's the plan. All the women and children stand up, all the men crouch down behind them, and that always got a good response. But mm-hmm. when we would the natives would jump out of the bush and start attacking with their spears. I would pretend, and this is, uh, it appeared to be one of the more enjoyable things that people got off on. I would pretend to have a uh, conversation with them. I yelled at them. Mm-hmm. And I made up a bunch of gobbledygook, which is mostly Hawaiian. In fact, I remember it today, uh, something along the lines of, Waka Maka Laka, Yubangi Swahili, Kahuna Haleki Hiki Nui Nui. And I would pretend that we were communicating 
and um, that's where the excuse me, madam, uh, they want to know if you will trade your husband for three coconuts came from. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, wait a second. I think we should hold out for four. And that always, with one exception that you're aware of, that always worked mm-hmm. very well. So I um, I tried out these different lines, and depending on who I had on my boat, uh, I would choose from a, an array of, in my comic holster, if you will, what I said. But the hippo pool and the attacking natives seemed to be the most fun. And, of course, um, other scenes gave me a chance just to sit back and shut up. Like, you can't really say a whole lot. Uh, in the in the elephant pool, the elephants are the entertainment, not the skipper. Mm-hmm. But that was that was the, the, the lines that I look forward to, and that worked the best for me. And of course, I had a a very uh, carefully defined closing spiel as I came around Trader Sam that always worked very well. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what was that? What was what was your? Well, we used to make fun of each other on the dock as we would come in. The unloaders who had the most boring job in the world. I hated unload. We would say you know, up on the dock, and some of this in various forms have already been used, but the, the guests just loved it. We would say something along the lines of the two of the world's largest but ugliest chimpanzees, uh, and they would laugh. And he said, no, 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 this is, there's a story behind this. We found these two chimpanzees in the jungle several months ago. We caught them. We brought them back. We shaved their hair off. We gave them a bath. We put a costume on them, and we trained them to unload. And uh, as you look at them today, I know you're all thinking the same four or five words. My gosh, how human-like. And they're, they're looking at these guys like, maybe they are chimpanzees. <laughs> and then you would say, uh, I trained them myself. If you feel faint, don't hesitate to throw your arms around their neck. They'll know exactly what to do. I trained them myself. And if you don't mind, it's ladies only, please. And, and the, the whole pattern, but if you had time to say all that, it worked very, very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was a, it was a very nice, fun ending to a 10-minute yeah. uh, experience. Had, had they segued into um, – I know that that uh, in the early part of the ride, Sully was telling us that the, the loader and unloader positions, that, that those were not people who got in the boats and, and did the spiels. That was a separate thing. Had they, had they transitioned to kind of everyone doing every job by the time that you were there? Oh, yes, you bet. There were a total of five positions. And, of course, when I was there the entire time, they had tickets, mm-hmm. the tear-off tickets. So they had tickets, front load, rear load, front unload, rear unload. Mm-hmm. And the, the rotation was boat dock, boat break. Mm-hmm. You took uh, the boat two trips. You got on front load for two trips or the equivalent of 20 minutes. You got on the second boat, which is right behind it, for two trips, and then you took a 20-minute break. Uh, likewise, if you were on tickets, you did the same thing. So you had uh, about 20, what turned out to be 20, 25 trips a day, but you, uh, the foreman, as they called them in those days, got a chance to put his best people. Uh, they had people that were had the gift of gab and were smiley guys. They put them on tickets. They had guys that were taller, had longer legs, and uh, were safety conscious. They put them on the load mm-hmm. so nobody fell in the water, which I know has happened several times. Um, and they had uh, the guys who just sort of hung loose and you know didn't really care, put them on unload. Mm-hmm. But each day they mixed it up so you had a chance to work you know, all different positions. Now, when um, sorry, give it just a second. I've got a siren outside my door. <laughs> All right, there we go. Um, so then, when you you had the opportunity, you had already moved on to 
you know, Park Communications and the Disneyland line. What was the opportunity that that opened up for you to move up to Imagineering? Um, I was happily happy as a clam editing the Disneyland line. I had all kinds of things I wanted to do with it. Uh, I started out by myself. Uh, it was a two-page uh, uh, sheet of mimeograph paper. When I, after two years, it was I think ten pages with a lot of photos and all kinds of things. But there was a, a lot of stuff I wanted to do with it. And someone approached me. I think the manager of uh, Disney University and said there's an opening up at WED, as they called it, Walt Disney Imagineering, mm-hmm. and uh, they are uh, they need somebody to go up there. They're hiring four or five people, and they would like you to consider it. So I, uh, after thinking about it, I thought this is, I'm not happy about this. I'm really having a lot of fun doing what I'm doing, but I'd be crazy not to accept this invitation to Oz. Mm-hmm. It truly was an invitation to the factory at Oz. And I knew that I'd be working closest to the heart and mind of the company, and I would have all kinds of adventures and meet all kinds of people that I never would have the chance to ever meet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was completely right about that, and uh, so I accepted it. But I I was a little sad when I left. Sure. What uh, what were your responsibilities at at, at, uh, WED? I was, um, uh, first of all, I was hired as a writer, and I was in charge of writing uh, all the spiels and narrations and uh, and updating them. I was in charge of uh, a number of projects to introduce uh, to the public. For instance, one of the first projects was the Independence Lake Project, the ski resort in the Sierras, which mm-hmm. replaced Mineral King. It didn't work out so well. Um, but I had a chance to work on any number of, uh, of Epcot-related promotional pieces. Uh, I wrote and produced a film uh, intended to convince the local people up in Truckee and the Sierras that what we were doing up there was a good thing and not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to work closely with, with Nunes, and certainly a lot of the um, uh, Imagineers that came over from the studio uh, not just John Hench, but Mark Davis and Herb Ryman and, and Harper Goff and uh, all kinds of people who I never would have had the honor to have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, after a while, I became manager of communications and uh, I did a number of promotional internal films. Um, I spent some time redoing some of the spiels and narrations at Disneyland, Disney World. Um but I think the most fun thing was was writing and producing promotional pieces, whether they be brochures um, or films on upcoming new Disney projects. Sure. I remember at one point they were thinking of uh, promoting the Wedway People Mover in mm-hmm. Frontierland, I mean, in Tomorrowland, uh, on a commercial basis and offering the Disney technology to the world. I remember editing a, uh, a magazine on that. Mm-hmm. I decided not to do that, but. I also hosted a lot of uh, Disney University tours, uh, PR tours, um, people from the Disney studio. Um, if, if, if Card, uh, Walker, or someone else wanted a big presentation done to update the Disney executives on what the future of Disney was, I many times was asked to get involved with that. So it was a very varied uh, uh, 
pot of different things that I get a chance to do, and I enjoy that. I, I always, I think I've, I've mentioned this in some of the the episodes I've done with Sully and and um, other people that it's amazing how. Uh, the memory for for people who I interview of forty or fifty or sixty years ago uh, is better than my memory of forty, fifty, or sixty days <laughs> ago. It's uh, it's it's always amazing, you know, all of the uh, the details that get crammed into people's heads that come out when we get a chance to talk. Um, what was uh, so? Did you have some good interactions with Harper Goff, Mark Davis? Uh, were, were they jungle I just, interactions? I, I, well, I asked Mark. Uh, he, I, when I redid the spiel in 76, he asked me to see it. And, uh, you know, I was scared to death because here's the creator uh, uh, of, the, of the thing years ago. And he read it and he sent me a nice note, which I still have today in my files, mm-hmm. that he liked it quite a bit, that, that uh, he liked the, the, some of the jokes I'd put in. And I, I spent uh, several times in his office talking about his intent, and what he had in mind when he designed this or why he put the elephants the way he did. Um, but feel, yeah, feel, I think feel the, free to expand on that too, because that's fascinating. Well, he he was the guy. He was Walt's Renaissance man. That's what Walt calls him. He's my Renaissance guy. You just give him an idea of what you're looking for, and then get out of his way. And, and there's nothing that Mark Davis couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And nothing. Uh, Harper, uh, as you know, was more of a set decorator. He, Harper was also very multi talented. He he was a musician. He was an actor. He Played the he put together uh, with Bob Maddie the octopus in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea in the early fifties. He was the art director of Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory, and here I am sitting in the employee cafeteria at Imagineering having lunch with a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's just talk about being in awe. I was more in awe of some of the senior designers than I was of any guest that ever came into Disneyland. Right. It was funny though the the way time the passage of time and the things you remember, uh, Sully. Uh, was my first manager at Disneyland, and he one of the things he excelled at, besides being a, a man's man and a no-nonsense guy, he was very fair, mm-hmm. and he was very, very big on exercising um, positive employee compliments and pats on the back. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure he realized he was doing it, but when you did a good job, he let you know. And so in 69, when I was in charge of the parade crowd control for one of the Disney parades, um, he had told me I'd done a, a very good job, and I, I never forgot that. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to uh, 1979, uh, which I guess was over a decade later, or exactly a decade later, Sully is, comes up to, to Imagineering for a tour by yours truly. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, here I am educating him on the future of the company. He and I walked around most of the day. I thought, how how amazing this is to be able to do this for him and to remember what a good supervisor he was to me 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he, he loved it. I mean, anybody that came up to Imagineering, it was like a, the golden ticket to uh, to a Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory or to Oz. Because mm-hmm. you saw things that were off limits that nobody had ever seen. In those days, Wed by design was a very nondescript building with no sign out front. Nobody knew or was supposed to know what it was. And if somebody from the outside wanted to do harm to Disney, uh, got in, they would, in those days, discover a lot of plans that Disney had in, in mind that 
Disney didn't want them to know. So it was a really um, kind of a secret facility uh, that was, like I said, with no sign and uh, uh, very, very high security. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is today, but I think it's probably changed. Well, I mean, it's it's behind the the you know security gates and all that up in Burbank, and it's you know, or Glendale. Which one is it? Bur in Burbank. Um, yeah, Glendale. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's um, you know, it's interesting, particularly because you know, it's it it was a group endeavor, and you know, there definitely are layers that have been put onto it over the years, and obviously, Mark Davis with the uh, some of the big. Uh, additional sh- show scenes and things that he brought in, uh, but it's it's interesting because you know even though there were added on layers, there still seemed to be a really clear vision, uh, clear philosophy. And that when you were doing the spiel, was that passed on to you specifically? Did they did they tell you exactly what they uh, had in mind with with the ride design? Um, not to repeat myself, but I think what what Lee David had told me in the very early days was exactly what Mark had in mind. The job of a Jungle Cruise skipper was to tell the story, taking the uh, guest from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. They did not envision the skipper's role as a one-man stand-up, nonstop comedy act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that it is today, but I have seen some spiels on the Internet that... that uh, are not, I don't think, the intent of what was envisioned for the ride. They wanted the animation to, to tell the story sure. and the vegetation and the experience of being on that boat. Mm-hmm. And the skipper was supposed to make it interesting with with funny humor, uh, occasional pauses to let the crews digest what they had just said and just take in their atmosphere. Yeah. I'm not so sure they do that today. Yeah. But as a Catch-22... Kyle, the, uh, I think the Imagineering people are somewhat at fault, the people who, as they say, plus the show. There were a number of areas of the Jungle Cruise back in the early 70s and late 60s where you could kind of relax and sit back and take it all in. Now, uh, to the best of my understanding, every 15 or 20 feet, there's a new piece of animation mm-hmm. that it kind of encourages the skipper to say something. And it, it kind of puts pressure on the skippers to always be talking, which mm-hmm. defeats the whole purpose of, of the original attraction. Well, and I think Orlando is better for that because they have a lot more space to work with. So I, right, I, I've right. always felt like Orlando's show spacing was was much better for having the time between the show scenes. I, I'm, I'm assuming you've ridden the Orlando jungle at Yes. Um, yes. Did do you feel that the that the Orlando experience is a little more? Uh, cartoony or a little bit less uh a little more polished or something along those lines where you know the anaheim jungle is a little bit more gritty and realistic well it's been years since i've been on the one at walt disney world but i do remember the space that they enjoy there at disney world is much better much more expansive um, they certainly learned a lot uh for, for animation and the sets that they put in there you know, I think that the management of Disney now feels that in order to get people to come back uh, and ride the same attraction over and over, they've got to keep adding new things. And I think they've stuffed too much into at least the one in, in Anaheim that it doesn't give anybody a chance to mm-hmm. to uh, to breathe. Um, that wasn't the intent of the attraction. I understand they feel they need to do that from a marketing standpoint to bring more people in. 
But when they take it beyond that, and a good example, in my humble opinion, is what they did to the Jungle Cruise during the holidays, calling it the Jingle Cruise. Mm -hmm. Who in God's name approved letting a set decorating crew from wardrobe or entertainment go in and completely cover every piece of animation with tinsel and Santa hats and uh, decorative uh, balls throughout the jungle. And I think they did that so they could market that for the holidays. But to me, that that is way out of line to, to what they should have Mm-hmm. done I, I, th- I think that was a big mistake yeah. but well, I'm again sure part of, they're I'm under sure, pressured yeah i'm sure part of it's like because haunted mansion holiday has become one of their biggest you know focuses i there's two hour mm-hmm. lines during the, the you know the halloween season and i'm sure that that success put a lot of pressure for other seasonal theming yep mm-hmm. yeah, it's a yeah small world every, has its you know holiday. what else can we do to bring more people in sure uh it, it, it and it didn't used to all be about capacity or or the money yeah. uh, back in in the days when when Eunice ran things, but when Eisner got in there and some of the others, it was all about and I understand this all about placing stockholders and making the yearly annual report look good and stocks going everybody's stock going up and they've done a wonderful job of doing that, but I think they've they've gone too far in some instances and I I just uh, I may be too old school <laughs> and less flexible, but. I don't know that any extra people came on the Jungle Cruise because they they did the jingle thing. I may be wrong, but yeah. it's uh, it's just not something I would have done. Yeah. So in in the time that you've obviously since uh, you left in '80, I'm, I'm sure you've come back many, many, many times to uh, to go through the parks and and um, and ride on the Jungle Cruise. Is there is there always a thrill when you do that and you hear a joke that you introduced back in the 70s? Well, you may be surprised to hear that after I left in 1980, I never went back to Disneyland. Oh. Uh, part of that is because I moved to Florida. Mm-hmm. I've never been on the Jungle Cruise since 1980 at Disneyland. Oh, interesting. Uh, and I've been on the Jungle Cruise uh, perhaps two or three times at Disney World. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of... Uh, can because of the way the internet works, I sort of can listen to the spiel. Mm-hmm. There must be a hundred different, uh, full nine minute, ten minute spiels mm-hmm. on YouTube of different skippers. Yep. And uh, I don't know what what the spiel looks like today. I, I I know that this one copy, as I said, of the spiel, it's on the internet that is about eighty five, ninety percent of the lines that I put in. But I would expect like anything else that that spiel has been rewritten yeah, six well, or eight times since I left. Yeah. But at least, in, it in, at least in 2006, 2007, when I was uh, toward my end there, um, it, it was really pretty consistent to what it had been, you know, prior to that. A lot of the same, a lot of the same jokes. I mean, they obviously changed a few things as far as tone as the culture of, of the country had changed. And, um, you know, and, but the, it very much has a lot of the, you know, the same spirit and the same because I've seen some early, uh, early like eighty scripts and it was, all, you know, eighty percent, ninety percent the same. One of the things that we were uh, cautioned about was topical humor, mm-hmm. interjecting what was going on in our society in those days, uh, to an extent where you. you the people are supposed to forget that they're 
uh, in civilization. They're out in the jungle cruise, and anything you do to remind them of politics or anything negative that's going on in the world is is a mistake. Um, every once in a while, I would go into the hippo pool and say, now we're, we're going into a very dangerous area. Most civilized people have never seen this before. We're entering a very large pool of bathing hippies, hippos, hippos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the 70s, that was relevant, and pe- people laughed at that. Um, but it, it really is, in my opinion, not so much what you say, but how you say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen skippers who rattle on and on and on, whether they get a laugh or not. Some of them even don't even have, uh, aren't even facing the, their crew. They have their back to the crew. And I'm talking about in the, in the 60s and 70s. These are the guys that shouldn't have been on a jungle cruise who have been very, very happy pushing a button on pirates. Because sure. the jungle cruise, let's face it, just saps you at the end of the day. If you've done a good job, you should be, you know, ready to go home and have a good stiff drink. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of guys that were on the cruise that probably were miscast. Yeah. But they well, showed up and they gave a spiel. Well, but that's I, I think that's not, you know, exclusive to any generation. You're always going to have, you know, a, a limited pool of people for whom it, it clicks and who are just naturals right. at it. You're going to have a middle ground of people on the bell curve who are, you know, able to do it and who are able to, you know put together a good show for the guests and it's just fine. And then you're going to have people who either they just don't get what it's about or they're just not mm-hmm. the right kind of person don't for care. doing it or they just don't care. And, you know, and it, it is tough. I mean, when you over a summer are, are doing, you know, three, four, 5,000 trips, uh, however much it actually is during a summer. And, you know, it, it can be rough to someone who maybe doesn't have, you know, a, a longer attention span they're not wired they're not wired like like the other people and that right. you know they're probably perfectly cast working somewhere else yeah but it's uh, that's why i suggested before that even when i started i thought why isn't this under the entertainment division and why don't they handpick yeah. people who who live and die to be in front of a group of people and entertain them but you're right uh you get paid the same two dollars an hour in 1968 mm-hmm. whether you get an applause or not yep Well, and I think that's, you know, it's something that I, you know, that I've I've heard as a consistent refrain over the years uh, is that it it has more of an entertainment feel uh, and that, you know, it should have more depth of training for people. But it's also tough with the number of of people who have to be maintained and trained on the attraction. Um, You know, it's just a logistic side of things. And, you know, because of Mm -hmm. the, because of the union side, um, because it's a moving vehicle, it's under the, the union that the attractions is under instead of the, the entertainment people. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuances for how that, that gets put together. Um, You know, is, um, I, I I just find that I mean obviously it's logistics of getting out to to California. I mean, are you do you have the curiosity? I mean, would would you go back and would you ride it again? I mean, if you had the opportunity. Sure, I yeah. think if I went to California and to LA on vacation and I wanted to spend some time at Disneyland, I absolutely would ride it. Yeah. Do, do I just you, have never been in a position to do that. Sure. Do Do you feel like uh, I mean, in speaking with you and both both email and and in person, I mean, over the 
uh, over the phone. Uh, you know, it seems to me that there's there are particular types of skippers, and I'll, I'll put myself in this category where the you know the jungle water gets in your blood and it never gets out. <laughs> uh, I would say that you're you're definitively in that category. Um, you know, if if you uh, <laughs> like the airplane situation, if the if the skipper had had the fish instead of the chicken and passes out, could you take over the the uh, the boat? Uh, do you think you can still take it? Do you still think you can take it around and uh, and do a trip? I spiel in my sleep sometimes, believe it or not. To me, this was almost a way of of life. It was so much less of a job. Uh, I would come in in the morning. I'd have twenty five great trips. I uh, look forward to uh, going back to my apartment in Seal Beach or going out to dinner with whatever whatever girl I was dating. Um, it was a wonderful lifestyle and. You know, I I really sat down and put it into perspective on many occasions, saying, you know, I'm living in the greatest country on in the world. I'm I'm working, making a living, getting fairly well paid at the greatest theme park in the greatest state. I'm working on the best attraction, mm-hmm. and uh, I couldn't enjoy this anymore. And my mood would actually change when they put me on the Main Street Cinema or put me over at the uh, Tomorrowland Utopia. I hated it. Yeah. I just hated it. Just standing at the treehouse was was annoying. I couldn't wait to get back on a jungle boat. Now I realize I am um, would be considered by most people as uh, absolutely nuts to feel that way, but that was just my personality, and uh, you know. Well, but I didn't the, even the, like it when I was foreman because I, I didn't get a chance to take the boat around. Yeah, well, there, stand on the dock. You know, there's enough people. Uh, look, I'm. There are moments where I'm shocked at how many people uh, download this show. Please don't stop. I mean, you know, for the people who are out there. But you know, <laughs> we've we've had over a million downloads in five years, and right. you know, if you divide that by a hundred-ish episodes, it's you know, uh, ten to fifteen thousand people who 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 are jungle devotees who enjoy hearing the stories that much where they'll put us on during their drive. Or so for me, it's it is very much a jungle lifestyle, and we've you know. Um, Try to take advantage of that uh, in the promotion and, and the way that we do it because people who are um, who have that love. I mean, it's one of the few places where that type of humor is, you know, the I guess what they call dad humor. You know, where the uh, the really obvious puns and the really silly jokes is an accepted part. I mean, it's you know, you couldn't go into a stand up club and do the kind of jokes we do in the jungle because it's you have to have the set to go with it. Exactly. But the, what other, I mean, the, the, the boats that you would have, and my, my perfect boat was a combination of half kids, mm-hmm. uh, four or five mom and dads, two or three mother-in-laws, a few grandmothers, and I couldn't wait to sort of take in who was on my boat as I would pull out from the dock to see who I was going to involve and which lady in the purple sweater was going to be yanked out by the man-eating vines and who was going to get squirted by the elephant or mm-hmm. almost squirted. Uh, I was very, very big uh, on, which is probably why I was exhausted every day, at audience involvement. Mm-hmm. And I tried to involve uh, every single person in some way uh, in my spiel. And I think that really, thinking back on it with you, was the payoff for me mm-hmm. and which kept me alive and in, in, uh, in uh, the enthusiasm that I constantly had. Uh, and of course I, I used the jokes that I used were proven. They weren't, 
they weren't jokes that I would use and wouldn't get a response from and then not, and then keep using them. I knew exactly which jokes to use, where to use them, how to say them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was truly an act, whether you lower your voice tone. Uh, I, I got into the role playing almost more than the guest did. You and know, it, 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 it's it made it come alive for them. It's funny because that's what it, that's what astounds me about Hong Kong. I don't know if you've seen the videos from the redesigned Hong Kong uh, Jungle Cruise. No, every one of those skippers has to be able to speak Mandarin, Cantonese, and English. They they oh, they have to be able to speak <laughs> in all three languages. Um, mm. And that's astounding to me that you can get the comedic timing down for each of those different. Look, I mean, it's it's very different. I mean, it, even if you were to do mm. a Jungle Cruise in Espanol, I mean, the the joke timing, you know, would be very right. And to do the same jokes in three different languages is amazing to me. Uh, yes, I, I know a lot of skippers who can't do it in one language, <laughs> let alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I was there, and you may have heard this from other other skips, but I I'd like to think that I was there during the golden years where we had the chance to improvise, to spontaneously give the best meal we wanted. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of people breathing down our necks, mm-hmm. and we had uh, the 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 group of skips before us were the Bill Sullivans and the Ron Dominguez's. I mean, we I was there what ten eleven years after the park opened. Yep. Uh, you know, years later, we wouldn't be able to to have as much fun as as we did back in the sixties and seventies. I'm it, convinced of that. It's it, it's funny that y- yes, you say that, and it's I, I don't think that I've ever interviewed anyone who didn't say that about their time. Uh, and we <laughs> we have kind of a shorthand for that that we we basically say that whatever your summer was, it was the perfect summer because. Uh, it's never going to come again, and it's yours uniquely. The, the the summer that you were a Jungle Cruise skipper is the best summer it ever was because that's when you remember um, the times that well, you had and the people it, you were with. Remember, too, in those days, there was much more emphasis on show. Mm-hmm. You know, the old mantra, safety, courtesy, show uh, capacity. I think, mean, of course, they've changed it to safety, courtesy, show efficiency. But mm-hmm. there was a much bigger emphasis on show and yeah. courtesy than there was on on making money and pushing as many people through as possible. Yeah. You know, and, and I've, uh, I've kind of changed my, my tone on that a little bit over the years as I've, as I've gotten to investigate and chat with people, you know, I, there's this feeling that there's this like ominous corporate entity that, you know, that by the definition of who they are, that they're sucking the, the, the money out of little children's wallets with a straw. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's much more just a byproduct of what of what the necessity is of doing the job as well as they do it. And that's that's the reason like right now there's an issue with park capacity where there's just too many people being led into the parks. It's the 60th anniversary. You know, you've got two hour lines for the Haunted Mansion. You've got over an hour for the Jungle Cruise. I mean, all these crazy uh, numbers of people that are coming in and then they've got so much closed down for the construction now with uh, Rivers yeah. of America yeah. being rerouted. The steam trains are closed for a year. Uh, they, they, Very okay. unsettling, isn't it? Well, but but look, it is and it isn't because that's what they have to do to continue to be successful, and they're really good yeah, at what they true. do. And the you know to be upset that Fantasmic is gone for a year in three years when someone takes the first step into the the Star Wars area, um, or you know when they put in Marvel City or when they whatever it was the same with California Adventure. Mm-hmm. You know you're not going to remember the inconvenience. You're going to remember the magic, and you're going to remember the. 
how fantastic it is to 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 do that for the first time, just like you were a child again. And yeah, it's clearly tough. clearly it, it, Disney's growth is driven by business smart business decisions it, it, and 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 financial motivation. In years before that, it really wasn't. When I was there, the Disney stock was I think twelve or thirteen dollars, mm-hmm. and now it's you know split I don't know how many times and it's over a hundred I think so. It's a whole different philosophy, yeah. and you know the longest wait on the Jungle Cruise that I can remember was fifteen minutes, and yeah. that's when the the queue line was completely full. Mm-hmm. And now you say it's an hour, hour and a half, so it's a whole different thing. Yeah, I mean, I, probably more like an hour because they have the whole they have a two story um, queue line for right. now that goes upstairs. That was part of the ninety five revamp. No, look, you know, I I think that a little bit of my my uh, cynicism has melted away. As I really, I really realize that the reason why Disney is having problems is because of how successful they are, and I would much rather be in that mm-hmm. situation than them having problems because they can't do it right. They're having sure. problems with people wanting to go to the park. They're having problems with people wanting to buy merchandise. They're having problems mm-hmm. of people wanting to consume what has been consistently good product on the animation side and on the live action side. There's a few things mm-hmm. I, that I, you know, I look at and go like, why are they making Once Upon a Time? And I'm sure that I'm going to get awful emails about how much people love that show. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, there, you know, there's always going to be something for everyone. But I think that the whether it's to please a stockholder or whatever, they're doing it right. And that part mm-hmm. of the reason that it works is because they build on the successes of their past. And I'm bringing it back around because that's what everything that you did was part of what built the the next generations. Everything that Sully did sure. in 55 built so that your generation could have what they had. And if anything, that's what we've done for the you know f- five years is tried to put a you know a pin in what it is about the jungle that's been ma- made it so that for sixty years it can stay uh, what it is. And I hope they don't make any major changes to it as far as maybe making it go away. I've heard rumor that there's a lot of land there and oh no, J- jungle. Look, I, I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell you with that any time that people start chatting about that, that it is purely uh, fanboy speculation that, look, <laughs> the, the Jungle Cruise was the original sea ticket attraction back before it was D's or E's. Um, right. You know, it was the cornerstone of the park as it opened. And whereas I think that they may do some really great things like they've done in Florida and, and, and Tokyo with some really amazing technology to improve the attraction, um, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing some things with projectors and, and you know, lighting effects and nighttime lighting. Right. That is just staggeringly great. And I actually I, – I don't – I can't imagine a situation in which the Jungle Cruise uh, is either removed or changed to the level – uh, that you wouldn't recognize it. You know, we, we play the game That's a lot. We ask people, you know, at the 100th anniversary in 40 years, what do you see the Jungle Cruise looking like? And I my answer is that I see it like it is now with, you know, uh, maybe a few technical things put in or a different soundtrack or, you know, music going on in the boats like they're doing in Tokyo. But look, the the core of that attraction is the core of Disneyland. It's a, right. it's right. a good story. It's people having fun and delivering that story in a way that engages people. And it's, it's that two or three weeks later, that little kid is going to say that same dumb joke that you've said a thousand times. 
because that was the thing that he remembers going to Disneyland is that the Jungle Cruise, this guy told this funny joke. And then in, yep. th- then in 20 years, that kid's going to be at a casting office asking to work on the Jungle Cruise. That's yeah, all very true. Yeah. All very true. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us around on, on the time side of things. Um, you know, please, if there's another story that you, you know, there's something else that's stuck in your memory that you want preserved for, uh, for the ages, please let me know. I mean, I'm, <laughs> the I'm, only, uh, the only short story that I haven't mentioned to you, and it's, it's just a, a very Twilight Zone moment uh, that might be of interest to your listeners. In 1970, going through the elephant pool, my wristwatch band broke, and I watched my brand-new Seiko watch disappear over the side of the boat into the muddy water just as I entered the jungle cruise. I thought, well, that's our, the, uh, the elephant pool. I thought, well, that's the end of that. Fast forward to the rehab the following winter when they drain the water. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out and see if I can find that. So I put some boots on, came in on my day off, walked out along the rail to the uh, elephant pool to where I think I dropped it, saw a glint of silver, mm-hmm. and there is my watch in the muck in the elephant pool still ticking. The band had been rotted away, but the watch was still ticking. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the Seiko Watch Company just for fun because I knew they'd appreciate a good story. And I said, I'd like you to know that your, your watch survived a, in a pool of stampeding elephants and it's still working. Well, they thought that was terrific. They put me in their newsletter. They sent me a note of thanks, sent me a couple of Seiko pens. Nine, ten years later, when I was up at Walt Disney Imagineering giving a walkthrough tour to some executives from Seiko, uh, to sponsor one of the World Showcase pavilions, I mentioned this little story, and he said, that was us. We're the ones that put you in the newsletter. We remember you. Mm -hmm. So you just never know. (laughs) The same guys are in publicity 10 years earlier. You never know what effect you're going to have or who you're going to meet, especially in the world of Disney. Anyway. And and you probably still have that watch sitting on a... On a shelf or something as a as a <laughs> no, memory. I don't have it, but it, no, it was oh, pretty that's amazing. Painful. The watch was the watch was still uh, was still ticking after being in that muck for eight or nine months. Oh yeah, no, that so. water is that water is terrifying. <laughs> one of one of the jokes that I used to do when I was coming in is I would have a cup of of water during the summer from the coolers, and I would have an empty cup and I would dredge it in there and make sure that everyone saw that I'd gotten the water out of the the river, and I would palm uh-huh. the other cup and I would drink the clean water, <laughs> and uh, I I finally had to stop doing that because I, I, we realized we didn't want to encourage the guests to ever think that they could do that because it was pretty terrible. The only other story which you can relate to, I think, is the um, mistakes of a rookie. When I was in the elephant pool, the only time I've ever been, I had a boat breakdown. My boat broke down just as we got to this little squirting elephant after Bertha in the shower. The elephant came up, squirted, went down, came up again, went down. But I'm right in front of it, completely broken down, can't move. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this rookie comes behind me in the boat into the elephant pool. I said, surely he's going to not hit that switch underneath the water that acts, activates the squirting elephant, mm-hmm. and he's going to keep his distance. No, that didn't happen. He pulls right up behind me, uh, activates the switch, and here I am knowing what's about to happen. Squirting comes, the elephant comes up, completely hoses down my whole boat. I stood there helplessly. I, I had no control over it. I guess in retrospect, I could have jumped down in front of the guests and taken the full brunt of the, of the, uh, of the water, but 
I thought, oh, this this isn't happening. He didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't understand that he was going to trip that switch. But I, uh, that was a tough moment, and everybody took it pretty well. But fortunately, it never happened again. I, I had a, I, I've had anyway. more than my share of, of soaked boats over the years. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Joel, I really appreciate you taking the time. I and mean, I know that this was uh, – we had a little technical glitches and we had some scheduling things. But I really appreciate you taking the time because uh, – Thoroughly enjoyable. I appreciate what you're doing to keep the jungle institution and traditions alive. Yeah. It's, a, it's a valuable service and I, I am honored to be a part of it. Well, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a labor of love for me and uh, – you know, it's uh, it's it's a good hobby. It keeps me out of trouble. Keeps me away from you know from booze and uh, strippers. So my wife is happy that I'm spending more time on this. <laughs> um, well, good. So cool, Joel. Thank you once again so much. Uh, and as to everyone in the listening audience, uh, we'll see you again in two years. And kungaloosh, everyone. <laughs>